This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slippers. They're woolly bullies. They're really cool, they're really snuggly, and they will keep your feet warm. If you live somewhere where it's cold, awesome. If you just want to walk around your house with cool, cute little bull slippers, hey, BunnySlippers.com has you covered. So check it out. Found item Found itemclothing.com also has your favorite I don't know, cult classic t-shirts if you want to check that out so bunnyslippers.com founditemclothing.com thank you everyone for coming back to week 4 week 5 of March I I don't even know anymore but hey, uh, we've got it going on and you've got it going on because you're listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And hey, if you want to help out the show real quick right now, why don't you go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and give us a you know, four or five uh, star review. Let us know what you think of the show. If you want to contact us and give us some suggestions, anything we can do to help you enjoy the show better, let us know. Okay, and that's on the contact of pgttcm.com. We're also on Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales, and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, my monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. And if you want, we can make that twice a month again. Hey, we can do that. Thank you so much for listening. Help support the show by going to pgttcm.com. Hit the links, hit the show notes, hit hit all hit up all that stuff. We got a bunch of stuff. We got Dave's stuff there. We've got Zach's stuff there. We've got interviews with Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy. Let's see, Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman and Victim Seven. So yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff, and we want more stuff with you in the future let us know what you want you want more spooky stuff do you want more ghost stories we'll get it done all right so hey how are you doing hope you're doing all right i'm doing pretty good anyone who follows me on social media knows i'm doing all right i was sick doing better but you know what here comes Arthur Mackens, the terror. Terror. Recording by Lilith Brander. The Terror by Arthur Machen, Chapter Seven. The Case of the Hidden Germans. Lewis gasped for a moment, silent in contemplation of the magnificence of rumour. The Germans already landed, hiding underground, striking by night, secretly, terribly, at the power of England. Here was a conception which made the myth of the Russians a paltry fable, before which the legend of Mons was an ineffectual thing. It was monstrous, and yet... He looked steadily at Merritt, a square-headed, black-haired, solid sort of man. He had symptoms of nerves about him for the moment, certainly, but one could not wonder at that, whether the tales he told were true, or whether he merely believed them to be true. Lewis had known his brother-in-law for twenty years or more, 
and had always found him a sure man in his own small world. But then, said the doctor to himself, those men, if they once get out of the ring of that little world of theirs, they are lost. Those are the men that believed in Madame Blavatsky. Well, he said, what do you think yourself? The Germans landed and hiding somewhere about the country. There's something extravagant in the notion, isn't there? I don't know what to think. You can't get over the facts. There are the soldiers with their rifles and the guns at the works all over Staffordshire, and those guns go off. I told you I'd heard them. Then who are the soldiers shooting at? That's what we ask ourselves at Middlingham. Quite so, I quite understand. It's an extraordinary state of things. It's more than extraordinary. It's an awful state of things. It's terror in the dark. And there's nothing worse than that. As that young fellow I was telling you about said, at the front you do know what you're up against. And people really believe that a number of Germans have somehow got over to England and have hid themselves underground? People say they've got a new kind of poison gas, something that they dig underground places and make the gas air and lead it by secret pipes into the shops. Others say that they throw gas bombs into the factories. It must be worse than anything they've used in France, from what the authorities say. The authorities? Do they admit that there are Germans in hiding about Middlingham? No, they call it explosions. But we know it isn't explosions. We know in the Midlands what an explosion sounds like and looks like. And we know that the people killed in these explosions are put into the coffins in the works. Their own relations are not allowed to see them. And so you believe in the German theory? If I do, it's because one must believe in something. Some say they've seen the gas. I heard that a man living in Dunwich saw it one night like a black cloud with sparks of fire in it floating over the tops of the trees by Dunwich Common. The light of an ineffable amazement came into Lewis's eyes. The night of Remnant's visit, the trembling vibration of the air, the dark tree that had grown in his garden since the setting of the sun, the strange leafage that was starred with burning with emerald and ruby fires and all vanished away when he returned from his visit to the garth and such a leafage had appeared as a burning cloud far in the heart of england what intolerable mystery what tremendous doom was signified in this but one thing was clear and certain that the terror of marion was also the terror of the midlands Lewis made up his mind most firmly that, if possible, all this should be kept from his brother-in-law. Marriage had come to Porth as to a city refuge from the horrors of Middleham. If it could be managed, it should be spared the knowledge that the cloud of terror had gone before him and hung black over the western land. Lewis passed the port and sat in an even voice. Very strange, indeed. A black cloud with sparks of fire. I can't answer for it, you know, it's only a rumour. Just so, and you think, or you're inclined to think that this and all the rest you've told me is to be put down to the hidden Germans? As I say, because one must think something. I quite see your point. No doubt, if it's true, it's the most awful blow that has ever been dwelled at any nation in the whole history of man. The enemy established now vitals. But is it possible, after all? How could it have been worked? 
Merritt told Lewis how it had been worked, or rather, how people said it had been worked. The idea, he said, was that it was a part, and a most important part, of the great German plot to destroy England and the British Empire. The scheme had been prepared years ago, some thought soon after the Franco-Prussian War. Moltke had seen that the invasion of England, in the ordinary sense of the term invasion, presented very great difficulties. The matter was constantly in discussion in the inner military and high political circles, and the general trend of opinion in these quarters was that at the best the invasion of England would involve Germany in the gravest difficulties and leave France in the position of the Tertius Gaudens. This was the state of affairs when a very high Prussian personage was approached by the Swedish professor, Uvelius. Thus merit, and here I would say in parenthesis that this Uvelius was by all accounts an extraordinary man. Considered personally and apart from his writings, he would appear to have been a most amiable individual. He was richer than the generality of Swedes, certainly far richer than the average university professor in Sweden. But his shabby, green frock coat and his spattered furry hat was notorious in the university town where he lived. No one laughed, because it was well known that Professor Huvelius spent every penny of his private means and a large portion of his official stipend on works of kindness and charity. He hid his hat in a garret, someone said, in order that others might be able to swell on the first floor. It was told of him that he restricted himself to a diet of dry bread and coffee for a month in order that the poor woman of the streets, dying of consumption, might enjoy luxuries in hospital. And this was the man who wrote the treatise De Facinore Humano to prove the infinite corruption of the human race. Oddly enough, Professor Huvelius wrote the most cynical book in the world, Hobbes preaches rosy sentimentalism in comparison. With the very highest motives, he held that a very large part of human misery, misadventure, and sorrow was due to the false convention that the heart of man was naturally and in the main well disposed and kindly, if not exactly righteous. Murderers, thieves, assassins, violators, and all the host of the abominable, he says in one passage, are created by the false pretense and foolish credence of human virtue. A lion in a cage is a fierce beast indeed, but what will he be if we declare him to be a lamb and open the doors of his den? Who will be guilty of the death of the men, women and children whom he will surely devour, save those who unlocked the cage? And he goes on to show that kings and the rulers of the peoples could decrease the sum of human misery to a vast extent by acting on the doctrine of human wickedness. War, he declares which is one of the worst of evils, will always continue to exist. But a wise king will decide a brief war rather than a lengthy one, a short evil rather than a long evil, and this not from the benignity of his heart towards his enemies, for we have seen that the human heart is naturally malignant, but because he desires to conquer, and to conquer easily, without a great expenditure of men or of treasure, knowing that if he can accomplish this feat, his people will love him and his crown will be secure. So he will wage brief victorious wars, and not only spare his own nation, but the nation of the enemy, since in a short war the loss is less on both sides than in a long war. 
and so from evil will come good. And how, ask Huvelius, has such wars to be waged? The wise prince, he replies, will begin by assuming the enemy to be infinitely corruptible and infinitely stupid, since stupidity and corruption are the chief characteristics of man. So the prince will make himself friends in the very councils of his enemy, and also amongst the populace, bribing the wealthy by proffering them the opportunity of still greater wealth, and winning the poor by swelling words, for, contrary to the common opinion, it is the wealthy who are greedy of wealth, while the populace are to be gained by talking to them about liberty, their unknown god. And so much are they enchanted by the words liberty, freedom, and such like, that the wise can go to the poor, rob them of what little they have, dismiss them with a hearty kick, and win their hearts and their votes forever, if only they will assure them that the treatment which they have received is called liberty. Guided by these principles, says Hevelius, the wise prince will entrench himself in the country that he desires to conquer, nay, with but little trouble, he may actually have literally throw his garrisons into the heart of the enemy country before war has begun. This is a long and tiresome parenthesis, but it is necessary as explaining the long tale which Merritt told his brother-in-law, he having received it from some magnate of the Midlands who had travelled in Germany. It is probable that the story was suggested in the first place by the passage from Huvelius which I have just quoted. Merritt knew nothing of the real Huvelius. He was all but a saint. He thought of the Swedish professor as a monster of iniquity, worse, as he said, than Nietzsche, meaning, no doubt, Nietzsche. So he told the story of how Huvelius had sold his plan to the Germans, a plan for filling England with German soldiers. Land was to be bought in certain suitable and well-considered places. Englishmen were to be bought as the apparent owners of such land, and secret excavations were to be made till the country was literally undermined. A subterranean Germany, in fact, was to be dug under selected districts of England. There were to be great caverns, underground cities, well-drained, well-ventilated, supplied with water, and in these places vast stores both of food and of munitions were to be accumulated, year after year, till the day dawned, and then, warned in time, the secret garrison would leave shops, hotels, offices, villas, and vanish underground, ready to begin their work of bleeding England at the heart. That's what Hansen told me said Merritt at the end of his long story. Henson, head of the Buckley Iron and Steel Syndicate, he has been a lot in Germany. Well, said Louise, of course it may be so. If it is so, it is terrible beyond words. Indeed, he found something horribly plausible in the story. It was an extraordinary plan, of course, an unheard of scheme, but it did not seem impossible. It was the Trojan horse on a gigantic scale. Indeed, he reflected, the story of the horse with the warriors concealed within it, which was dragged into the heart of Troy by the deluded Trojans themselves, might be taken as the prophetic parable of what had happened to England, if Henson's theory were well founded. And this theory certainly squared with what one had heard of German preparations in Belgium and in France, and placements for guns ready for the invader. 
German manufactories, which were really German forts on Belgian soil, the caverns by the Aden, made ready for the cannon. Indeed, Lewis thought he remembered something about suspicious concrete tennis courts on the heights commanding London. But the German army hidden under English ground, it was a thought to chill the stoutest heart. And it seemed from that wonder of the burning tree that the enemy mysteriously and terribly present at Middlingham was present also in Marion. Lewis, thinking of the country as he knew it, of his wild and desolate hillsides, his deep woods, his wastes and solitary places, could not be confessed that no more fit region could be found for the deadly enterprise of secret men. Yet, he thought again, there was but little harm to be done in Marion to the armies of England or to their munitionment. They were working for panic terror. Possibly that might be so, but the camp under the highway? That should be their first project, and no harm had been done there. Lewis did not know that since the panic of the horses, men had died terribly in that camp, that it was now a fortified place, with a deep, broad trench, a thick tangle of savage barbed wire about it, and a machine gun planted at each corner. End of chapter 7 Recording by Jenny Clements the Terror by Arthur Machen. What Mr. Merritt Found Mr. Merritt began to pick up his health and spirits a good deal. For the first morning or two of his stay at the doctor's, he contented himself with a very comfortable deck chair close to the house, where he sat under the shade of an old mulberry tree beside his wife and watched the bright sunshine on the green lawns, on the creamy crests of the waves, on the headlands of that glorious coast, purple even from afar, with the imperial glow of the heather, on the white farmhouses gleaming in the sunlight, high over the sea, far from any turmoil, from any troubling of men. The sun was hot, but the wind breathed all the while gently, incessantly, from the east, and Merritt, who had come to this quiet place not only from dismay, but from the stifling and oily airs of the smoky midland town, said that this east wind, pure and clear, and like well water from the rock, was new life to him. He ate a capital dinner at the end of his first day at Porth, and took rosy views as to what they had been talking about the night before, he said to Lewis, no doubt there must be trouble of some sort, and perhaps bad trouble. Still, Kitchener would soon put it all right. So things went on very well. Merritt began to stroll about the garden, which was full of the comfortable spaces, groves, and surprises that only country gardens know. To the right of one of the terraces he found an arbor or summer house covered with white roses, and he was as pleased as if he had discovered the pole. He spent a whole day there, smoking, lounging, and reading a rubbishy sensational story, and declared that the Devonshire roses had taken many years off his age. Then on the other side of the garden there was a filbert grove that he had never explored on any of his former visits, and again there was a find. Deep in the shadow of the filberts was a bubbling well, issuing from rocks and all manner of green, dewy ferns growing about it and above it, and an angelica springing beside it. Merritt knelt on his knees and hollowed his hand and drank the well water. He said, over his port, that night that if all the water were like the water of the filbert well the world would turn to teetotalism it takes a townsman to relish the manifold and exquisite joys of the country it was not till he had begun to venture abroad that merritt found that something was lacking of the old rich peace that used to dwell in marion he had a favorite walk which he never neglected year after year this walk led along the cliffs towards miros and then one could turn inland and return to porth by deep winding lanes that went over the alt 
So Merritt set out early one morning and got as far as a sentry box at the foot of the path that led up to the cliff. There was a sentry pacing up and down in front of the box, and he called on Merritt to produce his pass or to turn back to the main road. Merritt was a good deal put out and asked the doctor about this strict guard, and the doctor was surprised. "'I didn't know they had put their bar up there,' he said. "'I suppose it's wise. We are certainly in the far west here. Still, the Germans might slip round and raid us and do a lot of damage just because Marion is the last place we should expect them to go for.' "'But there are no fortifications, surely on the cliff?' "'Oh, no, I never heard of anything of the kind there.' "'Well, what's the point of forbidding the public to go on the cliff, then? "'I can quite understand putting a sentry on top to keep a lookout for the enemy. "'What I don't understand is a sentry at the bottom who can't keep a lookout for anything, "'as he can't see the sea, and why warn the public off the cliffs? "'I couldn't facilitate a German landing by standing on Pingareg even if I wanted to.' "'It is curious,' the doctor agreed. "'Some military reasons, I suppose.' "'He let the matter drop.' Perhaps because the matter did not affect him. People who live in the country all year round, country doctors certainly, are little given to desultory walking in search of the picturesque. Lewis had no suspicion that sentries whose object was equally obscure were being dotted all over the country. There was a sentry, for example, by the quarry at La Hafangal, where the dead woman and the dead sheep had been found some weeks before. The path by the quarry was used a good deal, and its closing would have inconvenienced the people of the neighborhood very considerably. But the sentry had his box by the side of the track, and had his orders to keep everybody strictly to the path, as if the quarry was a secret fort. It was not known till a month or two ago that one of these sentries was himself a victim of the terror. The men on duty at this place were given certain very strict orders, which from the nature of the case must have seemed to them unreasonable. For old soldiers, orders are orders. But here was a young bank clerk, scarcely in training for a couple of months, who had not begun to appreciate the necessity of hard, literal obedience to an order which seemed to him meaningless. He found himself on a remote and lonely hillside. He had not the faintest notion that his every movement was watched, and he disobeyed a certain instruction that had been given him. The post was found deserted by the relief. The sentry's dead body was found at the bottom of the quarry. This, by the way, for Mr. Merritt discovered again and again that things happened to hamper his walks and his wanderings. Two or three miles from Porth, there is a great marsh made by the Afon River before it falls into the sea, and here Merritt had been accustomed to botanize mildly. He had learned pretty accurately the causeways of solid ground that led to the sea of swamp and ooze and soft yielding soil, and he set out one hot afternoon determined to make a thorough exploration of the marsh, and this time to find that rare bog bean that he felt for sure must grow somewhere in its wide extent. He got into the by-road that skirts the marsh, and to the gate which he had always used for entrance. There was the scene as he had known it always, the rich growth of reeds and flags and rushes, the mild black cattle grazing on the islands of firm turf, the scented procession of the meadow-sweet, the royal glory of the loose-strife, flaming pennons, crimson and golden of the giant dock. But they were bringing out a dead man's body through the gate. A laboring man was holding open the gate on the marsh. Merritt, horrified, spoke to him and asked who it was and how it had happened. They do say he was a visitor at Porth. Somehow he had been drowned in the marsh, whatever. But it's perfectly safe. I've been all over it a dozen times. Well, indeed, we did always think so. If he did slip by accident, like, and fall into the water, it was not so deep. It was easy enough to climb out again. And this gentleman was quite young to look at him, poor man. And he has come to Marion for his pleasure and holiday and found his death in it. Did he do it on purpose? Is it suicide? They say he had no reasons to do that. Here the sergeant of police in charge of the party interposed, according to orders which he himself did not understand. A terrible thing, sir, to be sure, and a sad pity, 
and I am sure this is not the sort of sight you have come to see down in Marianne this beautiful summer. So don't you think, sir, that it would have been more pleasant-like if you would leave us to the sad business of ours? I have heard many gentlemen staying in Porth say that there is nothing to beat the view from the hill over there, not in the whole of Wales. Everyone is polite in Marianne, but somehow Merritt understood that, in English, this speech meant, move on. Merritt moved back to Porth. He was not in humor for any idle, pleasurable strolling after so dreadful a meeting with death. He made some inquiries in the town about the dead man, but nothing seemed known of him. It was said that he had been on his honeymoon, that he had been staying at the Porth Castle Hotel, but the people of the hotel declared that they had never heard of such a person. Merritt got the local paper at the end of the week. There was not a word in it of any fatal accident in the marsh. He met the sergeant of police in the street. That officer touched his helmet with the utmost politeness in the... Hope you are enjoying yourself, sir. Indeed, you do look a lot better already. But as to the poor man who was found drowned or stifled in the marsh, he knew nothing. The next day, Merritt made up his mind to go to the marsh to see whether he could find anything to account for so strange a death. What he found was a man with an armlet standing by the gate. The armlet had the letters CW on it, which are understood to mean Coast Watcher. The watcher said he had strict instructions to keep everybody away from the marsh. Why? He didn't know. But some said that the river was changing its course since the new railway embankment was built, and the marsh had become dangerous to people who didn't know it thoroughly. Indeed, sir, he added, it is part of my orders not to set foot on the other side of that gate myself, not for one scraggend of a minute. Merrick glanced over the gate incredulously. The marsh looked as it always had. There was plenty of sound, hard ground to walk on. He could see the track that he used to follow as firm as ever. He did not believe in the story of the changing course of the river and Lewis said he had never heard of anything of the kind. But Merritt had put the question in the middle of general conversation. He had not led up to it from any discussion of the death in the marsh, and so the doctor was taken unawares. If he had known of the conversation in Merritt's mind between the alleged changing of the Afon's course and the tragical event in the marsh, no doubt he would have confirmed the official explanation. He was, above all things, anxious to prevent his sister and her husband from finding out that the invisible hand of terror that ruled at Miglingham was ruling also in Marion. Lewis himself had little doubt that the man who has found dead in the marsh had been struck down by the secret agency, whatever it was, that had already accomplished so much of evil. But it was a chief part of the terror that no one knew for certain that this or that particular event was to be ascribed to it. People do occasionally fall over cliffs through their own carelessness, and as the case of Garcia the Spanish sailor showed, cottagers and their wives and children are now and then the victims of savage and purposeless violence. Lewis had never wandered about the marsh himself, but Remnant had pottered around it and about it and declared that the man who met his death there, his name was never known, in Porth at all events, must either have committed suicide by deliberately lying prone in the ooze and stifling himself, or else must have been held down in it. There were no details available, so it was clear that the authorities had classified this death with the others. Still, the man might have committed suicide, or he might have had a sudden seizure and fallen in the slimy water face down and so on. It was possible to believe that case A or B or C was in the category of ordinary accidents or ordinary crimes, but it was not possible to believe that A and B and C were all in that category, and thus it was to the end, and thus it is now. We know that the terror reigned and how it reigned, but there were many dreadful events ascribed to its rule, about which there must always be room for doubt. For example, there was the case of the Marianne, the rowing boat which came to grief in so strange a manner, almost under Merritt's eyes. In my opinion, he was quite wrong in associating the sorry fate of the boat and her occupants with a system of signaling by flashlights, which he detected, 
or thought he detected, on the afternoon in which the Marianne was capsized. I believe his signaling theory to be all nonsense, in spite of the naturalized German governess who was lodging with her employers in the suspected house. But on the other hand, there is no doubt in my own mind that the boat was overturned and those in it drowned by the work of the terror. End of chapter 8 Recording by Jenny Clements The Terror by Arthur Machen The Light on the Water Let it be noted carefully that so far Merritt had not the slightest suspicion that the terror of Middlingham was quick over Marion. Lewis had watched and shepherded him carefully. He had let out no suspicion of what had happened in Marion. Before taking his brother-in-law to the club, he had passed round a hint among the members. He did not tell the truth about Middlingham. And here again is a point of interest that as the terror deepened, the general public cooperated voluntarily, and one would say almost subconsciously with the authorities in concealing what they knew from one another. But he gave out a desirable portion of the truth, that his brother-in-law was nervy, not by any means up to the mark, and that it was therefore desirable that he should be spared of the knowledge of the intolerable and tragic mysteries which were being enacted all about them. "'He knows about that poor fellow who is found in the marsh,' said Lewis, "'and he has a kind of vague suspicion that there is something out of the common about the case, but no more than that.' "'A clear case of suggested or rather commanded suicide,' said Lemnett. "'I regard it as a strong confirmation of my theory.' "'Perhaps so,' said the doctor, dreading lest he might have to hear about the Z-ray all over again. "'But please don't let anything out to him. I want him to get built up thoroughly before he goes back to Middlingham.' Then, on the other hand, Merritt was still as death about the doings of the Midlands. He hated to think of them, much more to speak of them. And thus, as I say, he and the men at the Porth Club kept their secrets from one another. And thus, from the beginning to the end of the terror, the links were not drawn together. In many cases, no doubt.' A and B met every day and talked familiarly. It may be confidentially on other matters of all sorts, each having in his possession half of the truth, which he concealed from the other, so the two halves were never put together to make a whole. Merritt, as the doctor guessed, had a kind of uneasy feeling. It scarcely amounted to a suspicion, as to the business of the marsh, chiefly because he thought the official talk about the railway embankment and the course of the river rank nonsense, but finding that nothing more happened, he let the matter drop from his mind and settled himself down to enjoy his holiday. He found to his delight that there were no sentries or watchers to hinder him from the approach to Larnack Bay, a delicious cove, a place where the ash grove and the green meadow and the glistening bracken sloped gently down to red rocks and firm yellow sands. Merritt remembered a rock that formed a comfortable seat, and here he established himself of a golden afternoon and gazed at the blue of the sea and the crimson bastions and bays of the coast as it bent inward to Sarnau, and swept out again southward to the odd-shaped promontory called the Dragon's Head. Merritt gazed on, amused by the antics of the porpoises, who were tumbling and splashing and gumbling a little way out at sea, charmed by the pure and radiant air that was so different from the oily smoke that often stood for heaven at Middlingham, and charmed, too, by the white farmhouses dotted here and there on the heights of the curving coast. Then he noticed a little rowboat at about two hundred yards from the shore. There were two or three people aboard, he could not quite make out how many, and they seemed to be doing something with a line. They were no doubt fishing, and Merritt, who disliked fish, wondered how people could spoil such an afternoon, such a sea, such pellucid and radiant air by trying to catch white, flabby, offensive, evil-smelling creatures that would be excessively nasty when cooked. He puzzled over this problem and turned away from it, to the contemplation of the crimson headlands. And then he says that he noticed that signaling was going on, 
flashing lights of intense brilliance, he declares, were coming from one of those farms on the heights of the coast. It was as if white fire was sprouting from it. Merritt was certain, as the light appeared and disappeared, that some message was being sent, and he regretted that he knew nothing of heliography. Three short flashes, a long and very brilliant flash, then two short flashes. Marriott fumbled in his pocket for pencil and paper so that he might record these signals, and bringing his eyes down to the sea level, he became aware, with amazement and horror, that the boat had disappeared. All that he could see was some vague, dark object far to the westward, running out with the tide. Now it is certain, unfortunately, that the Marianne was capsized, and that two schoolboys and the sailor in charge were drowned. The bones of the boat were found amongst the rocks far along the coast, and the three bodies were also washed ashore. The sailor could not swim at all, the boys only a little, and it needs an exceptionally fine swimmer to fight against the outward suck of the tide as it rushes past Pinnegred Point. But I have no belief whatever in Marriott's theory. He held, and still holds for all I know, that the flashes of light which he saw coming from Pennyer Hall, the farmhouse, oh the height, had some connection with the disaster to the Marianne. When it was ascertained that a family were spending their summer at the farm, and that the governess was a German, though a long, naturalized German, Merritt could not see that there was anything left to argue about, though there might be more details to discover. But in my opinion, all this was a mere mare's nest. The flashes of brilliant light were caused, no doubt, by the sun lighting up one window of the farmhouse after the other. Still, Merritt was convinced from the very first, even before the damning circumstance of the German governess was brought to light, and on the evening of the disaster, as Lewis and he sat together after dinner, he was endeavouring to put what he called the common sense of the matter to the doctor. "'If you hear a shot,' said Merritt, "'and you see a man fall, you know pretty well what killed him.' There was a flutter of wild wings in the room. A great moth beat to and fro and dashed itself madly against the ceiling, the walls, the glass bookcase. Then a sputtering sound, a momentary dimming of the lamp. The moth had succeeded in its mysterious quest. "'Can you tell me,' said Lewis, as if he were answering Merritt, "'why moths rush into the flame?' Lewis had put his question as to the strange habits of the common moth to Merritt with the deliberate intent of closing the debate on death by heliograph. The query was suggested, of course, by the incident of the moth and the lamp, and Lewis thought that he had said, Oh, shut up, in a somewhat elegant manner. And in fact, Merritt looked dignified, remained silent, and helped himself to port. That was the end that the doctor had desired. He had no doubt in his own mind that the affair of the Marianne was but one more item in the long account of horrors that grew larger almost with every day, and he was in no humor to listen to wild and futile theories as to the manner in which the disaster had been accomplished. Here was a proof that the terror that there was upon them was mighty, not only by the land, but on the waters, for Lewis could not see that the boat had could have been attacked by any ordinary means of destruction. From Merritt's story, it must have been in shallow water. The shore of Larnock Bay shows very gradually and the admiralty chart showed the depth of water two hundred yards out to be only two fathoms. This would be too shallow for a submarine, and it could not have been shelled, and it could not have been torpedoed. There was no explosion. The disaster might have been due to carelessness. Boys, he considered, would play the fool anywhere, even in a boat. But he did not think so. A sailor would have stopped them, and it may be mentioned that the two boys were, as a matter of fact, extremely steady, sensible young fellows not in the least likely to play foolish tricks of any kind. Lewis was immersed in these reflections, having successfully silenced his brother-in-law. He was trying in vain to find some clue to the horrible enigma. The Middlingham theory of a concealed German force hiding in places under the earth was extravagant enough, and yet it seemed the only solution that approached plausibility. 
But then again, even a subterranean German host would hardly account for this wreckage of a boat floating on a calm sea. And then what of the tree with the burning in it that had appeared in the garden there a few weeks ago, and the cloud with the burning in it that had shone over the trees of the Midland village? I think I have already written something of the probable emotions of the mathematician confronted suddenly with an undoubted two-sided triangle. I said, if I remember, that he would be forced, in decency, to go mad, and I believe that Lewis was very near to this point. He felt himself confronted with an intolerable problem that most instantly demanded solution, and yet, with the same breath as it were, denied the possibility of there being any solution. People were being killed in an inscrutable manner, by some inscrutable means day after day, and one asked why and how, and there seemed no answer. In the Midlands, where every kind of mutinotment was manufactured, the explanation of German agency was plausible, and even if the subterranean notion was to be rejected as savoring altogether too much of the fairy tale, or rather of the sensational romance, yet it was possible that the backbone of the theory was true. The Germans might have planted their agents in some way or another in the midst of our factories, but here in Marion, what serious effect could be produced by the casual and indiscriminate slaughter of a couple of schoolboys in a boat, of a harmless holiday-maker in a marsh? The creation of an atmosphere of terror and dismay. It was possible, of course, but it hardly seemed tolerable, in spite of the enormities of Louvain and of Lustiania. Into these meditations and into the still dignified silence of merit broke the rap on the door of Lewis's man and those words which harass the ease of the country doctor when he tries to take any ease. You're wanted in the surgery, if you please, sir. Lewis bustled out and appeared no more that night. The doctor had been summoned to a little hamlet on the outskirts of Porth, separated from it by half a mile or three-quarters of the road. One dignifies, indeed, the settlement without a name and calling it a hamlet. It was a mere row of four cottages, built about a hundred years ago for the accommodation of the workers and a quarry, long since disused. In one of these cottages, the doctor found a father and mother weeping and crying out to Dr. Bach, Dr. Bach, and two frightened children and one little body still and dead. It was the youngest of the three, little Johnny, and he was dead. The doctor found that the child had been asphyxiated. He felt the clothes. They were dry. It was not a case of drowning. He looked at the neck. There was no mark of strangling. He asked the father how it had happened, and father and mother weeping most lamentably declared that they had no knowledge of how their child had been killed. And let it was the people that had done it. The Celtic fairies were still malignant. Lewis asked what had happened that evening. Where had the child been? Was he with his brother and sister? Don't they know anything about it? Reduced into some sort of order from its original, piteous confusion, this is the story that the doctor gathered. All three children had been well and happy through the day. They had walked in with the mother, Mrs. Roberts, to Porth, on a marketing expedition in the afternoon. They had returned to the cottage, had had their tea, and afterwards played about on the road in front of the house. John Roberts had come home somewhat late from his work, and it was after dusk when the family sat down to supper. Supper over, the three children went out again to play with other children from the cottage next door, Mrs. Roberts telling them that they might have half an hour before going to bed. The two mothers came to the cottage gates at the same moment and called out to their children to come along and be quick about it. The two small families had been playing on the strip of turf across the road, just by the stile into the fields. The children ran across the road, all of them except Johnny Roberts. His brother Willie said that just as their mother called them, he heard Johnny cry out, Oh, what's that beautiful shiny thing over the stile? End of chapter 9
by Arthur Machen. Chapter 10. The Child and the Moth. The little Roberts ran across the road, up the path, and into the lighted room. Then they noticed that Johnny had not followed them. Mrs. Roberts was doing something in the back kitchen, and Mr. Roberts had gone out to the shed to bring in some sticks for the next morning's fire. Mrs. Roberts heard the children run in and went on with her work. The children whispered to one another that Johnny would catch it when their mother came out of the back room and found him missing, but they expected he would run in through the open door any minute. But six or seven, perhaps ten minutes passed, and there was no Johnny. Then the father and mother came into the kitchen together and saw that their little boy was not there. They thought it was some small piece of mischief, that the two other children had hidden the boy somewhere in the room, in the big cupboard, perhaps. "'What have you done with him, then?' said Mrs. Roberts. "'Come out, you little rascal, directly in a minute!' There was no little rascal to come out, and Margaret Roberts, the girl, said that Johnny had not come across the road with them. He must still be playing all by himself by the hedge. "'What do you let him stay like that for?' said Mrs. Roberts. "'Can I trust you for two minutes together? Indeed to goodness, you are all of you more trouble than you are worth.' She went to open the door. "'Johnny, come you in directly, or you will be sorry for it. "'Johnny!' The poor woman called at the door. She went out to the gate and called there. "'Come you, little Johnny, come you bochin. There's a good boy. I do see you hiding there.' She thought he must be hiding in the shadow of the hedge and that he would come across, running and laughing. He was always such a happy little fellow, to her across the road. But no little merry figure danced out of the gloom of the still, dark night. It was all silence. It was then, as the mother's heart began to chill, though she still called cheerfully to the missing child, that the elder boy told how Johnny had said there was something beautiful by the style, and perhaps he did climb over and he is running now about the meadow and has lost his way. The father got his lantern then, and the whole family went crying and calling about the meadow, promising cakes and sweets and a fine toy to poor Johnny if he would come to them. They found the little body under the ash grove in the middle of the field. He was quite still and dead, so still that a great moth had settled on his forehead, fluttering away when they lifted him up. Dr. Lewis heard this story. There was nothing to be done, little to be said to these most unhappy people. "'Take care of the two that you have left to you,' said the doctor as he went away. "'Don't let them out of your sight if you can help it. "'It is dreadful times that we are living in.' "'It is curious to record that all through these dreadful times "'the simple little season went through its accustomed course at Porth. "'The war and its consequences had somewhat thinned the numbers of the summer visitors.' 
Still, a very fair contingent of them occupied the hotels and boarding houses and lodging houses, and bathed from the old-fashioned machines on one beach, or from the new-fashioned tents on the other, and sauntered in the sun, or lay stretched out in the shade under the trees that grow down almost to the water's edge. Porth never tolerated Ethiopians or shows of any kind on its sands, but the Rockets did very well that summer in their garden entertainment, given in the castle grounds, and the fit-up companies that came to the assembly rooms are said to have paid their bills to a woman and to a man. Porth depends very largely on its midland and northern custom, custom of a prosperous, well-established sort. People who think Llandedlow overcrowded and Colwyn Bay too raw and red and new come year after year to the placid old town in the southwest and delight in its peace. And, as I say, they enjoyed themselves much as usual there in the summer of 1915. Now and then they became conscious, as Mr. Merritt became conscious, that they could not wander about quite in the old way, but they accepted sentries and coast-watchers and people who politely pointed out the advantages of seeing the view from this point rather than from that as very necessary consequences of the dreadful war that was being waged. Nay, as a Manchester man said, after having been turned back from his favorite walk to Castech Koch, it was gratifying to think that they were so well looked after. So far as I can see, he added, there's nothing to prevent a submarine from standing out there by innocent and landing half a dozen men in a collapsible boat in any of these little coves. And pretty fools we should look, shouldn't we, with our throats cut on the sands or carried back to Germany in the submarine? He tipped the coast watcher half a crown. That's right, lad, he said. You give us the tip. Now, here was the strange thing. The North Countryman had his thoughts on elusive submarines and German raiders. The watcher had simply received instructions to keep the people off Kastech Koch fields without reason assigned. And there can be no doubt that the authorities themselves, while they marked out the fields as in the terror zone, gave their orders in the dark and were themselves profoundly in the dark as to the manner of slaughter that had been done there. For if they had understood what had happened, they would have understood also that their restrictions were useless. The Manchester man was warned off his walk about ten days after Johnny Roberts' death. The watcher had been placed at his post because, the night before, a young farmer had been found by his wife lying on the grass close to the castle with no scar on him, nor any mark of violence, but stone dead. The wife of the dead man, Joseph Craddock, finding her husband lying motionless on the dewy turf, went white and stricken up the path to the village and got two men who bore the body to the farm. Lewis was sent for and knew at once when he saw the dead man that he had perished in the way that the little Roberts boy had perished whatever awful way that might be. Craddock had been asphyxiated, and here again there was no mark of a grip on the throat. 
It might have been a piece of work by Burke and Hare, the doctor reflected. A pitch pastor might have been clapped over the man's mouth and nostrils and held there. Then a thought struck him. His brother-in-law had talked of a new kind of poison gas that was said to be used against the munition workers in the Midlands. Was it possible that the deaths of the man and the boy were due to some such instrument? He applied his tests, but could find no trace of any gas having been employed. Carbonic acid gas? A man could not be killed with that in the open air. To be fatal, that required a confined space, such a position as the bottom of a huge vat or of a well. He did not know how Craddock had been killed. He confessed it to himself. He had been suffocated. That was all he could say. It seemed that the man had gone out at about half-past nine to look after some beasts. The field in which they were was about five minutes' walk from the house. He told his wife he would be back in a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes. He did not return, and when he had been gone for three quarters of an hour, Mrs. Craddock went out to look for him. She went into the field where the beasts were, and everything seemed all right, but there was no trace of Craddock. She called out. There was no answer. Now the meadow in which the cattle were pastured is high ground. A hedge divides it from the fields which fall gently down to the castle and the sea. Mrs. Craddock hardly seemed able to say why, having failed to find her husband among his beasts, she turned to the path which led to Castelcoch. She said at first that she had thought that one of the oxen might have broken through the hedge and strayed, and that Craddock had perhaps gone after it. And then, correcting herself, she said, There was that, and then there was something else that I could not make out at all. It seemed to me that the edge did look different from usual. To be sure, things do look different at night, and there was a bit of sea mist about, but somehow it did look odd to me, and I said to myself, Have I lost my way, then? She declared that the shape of the trees in the hedge appeared to have changed, and besides, it had a look as if it was lighted up somehow. And so she went on towards the stile to see what all this could be, and when she came near, everything was as usual. She looked over the stile and called, and hoped to see her husband coming towards her, or to hear his voice, but there was no answer, and glancing down the path she saw, or thought she saw, some sort of brightness on the ground. A dim sort of light, like a bunch of glowworms in the edge bank. And so I climbed over the stile and went down the path, and the light seemed to melt away. And there was my poor husband lying on his back, saying not a word to me when I spoke to him and touched him. So for Lewis, the terror blackened and became altogether intolerable, and others, he perceived, felt as he did. 
He did not know, he never asked, whether the men at the club had heard of these deaths of the child and the young farmer, but no one spoke of them. Indeed, the change was evident. At the beginning of the terror, men spoke of nothing else. Now it had become all too awful for ingenious chatter or labored and grotesque theories. And Lewis had received a letter from his brother-in-law at Middlingham. It contained the sentence, I am afraid Fanny's health has not greatly benefited by her visit to Porth. There are still several symptoms I don't like at all. And this told him, in a phraseology that the doctor and Merritt had agreed upon, that the terror remained heavy in the Midland town. It was soon after the death of Craddock that people began to tell strange tales of a sound that was to be heard of nights about the hills and valleys to the northward of Porth. A man who had missed the last train from Miros had been forced to tramp ten miles between Miros and Porth, seems to have been the first to hear it. He said he got to the top of a hill by Trendenoch, somewhere between half-past ten and eleven, when he first noticed an odd noise that he could not make out at all. It was like a shout, a long, drawn-out, dismal wail coming from a great way off, faint with distance. He stopped to listen, thinking at first that it might be owls hooting in the woods. But it was different, he said, from that. It was a long cry, and then there was silence, and then it began over again. He could make nothing of it, and feeling frightened, he did not quite know of what. He walked on briskly and was glad to see the lights of Porth Station. He told his wife of this dismal sound that night, and she told the neighbors, and most of them thought it was all fancy, or drink, or the owls after all. But the night after, two or three people, who had been to some small merrymaking in a cottage just off the Miros Road, heard the sound as they were going home soon after ten. They, too, described it as a long, wailing cry, indescribably dismal in the stillness of the autumn night. Like the ghost of a voice, said one, as if it came up from the bottom of the earth, said another. End of chapter 10